Hi there. Welcome to Finding Space with Alex Tyson, the show that celebrates the everyday legends who put in the hard work to become who they want to be and live the life they want to live. For people who understand that when we practice compassion and find wisdom within ourselves, we find success and happiness. Join me in hearing amazing stories from everyday individuals who have found incredible personal and professional growth through varied and, at times, wild methods of self-improvement and self-responsibility, and through their unique perspectives and work, have gone on to better the lives of those around them. From nurturing health to growing your wealth, or enjoying the present to crafting your future, no aspect of life is off-topic. G'day guys, welcome to Finding Space with Alex Tyson. Thank you to everyone from our tribe who has written a review recently. It makes a big difference to helping others find out about us too. If you haven't written a review, well, come on then. Also guys, I recently released my first book called Health Supercharged. How to use infrared sauna and shift your lifestyle to become healthier. If you're interested in using infrared sauna or learning more about what the fundamentals of health are and how to address them in your life each day, you'll like this book. You can purchase it from Amazon, just search Health Supercharged or head to foundspace.com.au and you can purchase it there. Ah, Life is full of synchronicities, isn't it? Three weeks ago, my partner's father passed away from a heart attack. And today, I find myself interviewing one of Australia's leading cardiologists. His name is Dr. Warwick Bishop. Dr. Warwick Bishop is a three-time number one international best-selling author and cardiologist with a special interest in cardiovascular disease prevention. He's a member of the Australian Atherosclerosis Society and a member of the Society of Cardiac Computer Tomography. He's also a current member of the Society of Cardiovascular Computer Tomography and was the first cardiologist in Tasmania with a specialist recognition in CT cardiac coronary angiography. In today's episode, we explore the real problem facing Australians, that is cardiovascular disease, understanding association and causation, what action we can take to prevent heart attack, atrial fibrillation, myocarditis linked to the COVID vaccine, and much, much more. As you guys know, I'm a big proponent of the impact that the lifestyle we live and the choices we make have on our epigenetic and therefore overall health expression. And we did talk about this somewhat in our conversation today, although it didn't quite end up where I thought we would. And that's because the real message I received from this interview with Warwick was this. Australians aren't aware of the impacts poor heart health can have on each of us. And now with accurate CT scans, we can get tested to see how our heart is performing right now. Prevention is key. But don't let your belief that you're doing all the right things be a reason not to scan your heart especially as we grow into our 50s and 60s. If there's someone you know who might be at risk, bump them to have their heart checked and remain focused on what sort of lifestyle choices lead to good or bad heart health. Hopefully, this helps avoid one of the tragic experiences I had just recently. This episode of Finding Space with Alex Tyson is brought to you by Found Space. Make your home a place of wellness to live a long and healthy life. Visit foundspace.com.au for more information. And so I give you Warwick Bishop. Dr. Warwick Bishop, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me, Alex. I really like doing this podcast because it actually is a form of expression for myself. Sometimes things that are happening in my life seem to be in tune with the 
some of the incredible guests that I've had on. And, you know, if I just open this up from the start, because I think it could be a good place to start. And that is the last seven days for me have been really, a really challenging time, I guess, a beautiful time, but also challenging. Um, I became engaged uh, last Tuesday and 24 hours after that, my then fiance's father passed away. And yeah, it's been, it's been pretty emotional since then. And he passed away from a heart attack. He had heart issues 15 years prior. He had a heart attack and then, and then this happened. And it's just, it's a, you know, it's so many things. One of them being, it's just a reminder of the importance of what we're talking about today, because everything I do in health is to try and raise awareness of certain things and the heart and everything about it is something that definitely needs to be talked about more. We need to talk about lifestyle factors. We need to talk about understanding when we're at risk of these kind of things. And so I thought if we start there, start with, I guess, what happens quite regularly. In, in his instance, it was sudden cardiac arrest, uh, but his heart also had troubles prior to that. And um, I just thought it very fortuitous that you were coming on the show today. So I'm guessing that you come across that thing pretty often, right? Well, Alex, a couple of things to say. First of all, I'm so sorry for the loss for you um, and, of course, uh, for your fiancé. Uh, there, is, there is no words that can really describe the loss of someone you love in such a way. And as we have talked about previously and as you know from my own work, my whole objective is to try and help people live as well as possible for as long as possible and prevent premature death uh, from heart attack. So th there is such a tragedy there. It's time lost. It's love lost. I I'm almost tearing up thinking how much has been missed. He would have wanted to see you guys happy. Um, and it's, we forget the human cost and the emotional cost of heart attack. We're often focused on the statistics and we hear stuff from the Heart Foundation and we see that someone had a heart attack on the news walking out of the gym and it washes over us because we hear it. But I can tell from what you've already described that we represent the, the emotional impact that this has. And, and I've seen it and... It is, you know, really part of my mission to try and stamp heart attack out. Further to that, I have to say congratulations. This really is a bittersweet roller coaster for you at the moment. Congratulations on finding the person you want to be with. And I, I do genuinely wish you the very best. Thanks, man. Yeah. Having said all that, uh, there's no question we should talk about heart health. And to a large degree, one of the things that completely confounds me is that our mindset around heart health really hasn't been formulated in a sensible way. We walk around the population, when I say we, the general population have no issue with thinking about getting their car serviced on a regular basis to make sure it's reliable and it works. And they do that even when the car's running well. And yet when we talk to people, when I talk to people about being proactive around their own heart health, the single most important engine in their entire life, the single pump that keeps them going for nearly 3 million beats, 3 billion beats, forgive me, 3 billion beats, 
people glaze over. I say, well, what are you doing to do the maintenance on your own heart health? And, and really, this is this is the platform we should be standing on, shouting from, educating from, and helping people from. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how big is the actual problem that we're dealing with in Australia on a, on a global scale? You know, like, is it one in four of us are likely to be diagnosed with cardiovascular disease? I suspect it's something along those lines. You're pretty close. In fact, it is, it is numbers in that order. Mm-hmm. And to a large degree, the vast majority of the population will either see their demise through cancer, um, and that's not my area of expertise, or through cardiac-related illness, which is generally driven by a coronary artery disease. Of course, there's different ways the heart can be affected, but coronary artery disease, which is uh, for the layperson when the arteries or the pipes supplying blood to the heart clog up, this is the thing that kills most people. Now, honestly, Alex, the uh, inertia to be proactive is enormous. When I speak to people about this, some people say, oh, I don't want to know, which is extraordinary. And I say to them, well, do you put black sticky tape over the uh, fuel gauge in your car because you just don't want, to be, don't want to know? Do you just want to guess what's happening? It's somewhat, somewhat extraordinary. The reality, though, is if we're looking at nearly 50% of the population affected by this, some people will also say, well, you've got to die from something. And I agree. The last thing I want to do is keep people alive when they're in a nursing home being fed custard. They don't know where they are and someone's helping them toilet. This is not quality of life. That's not my objective. But the critical statistic, Alex, is that approximately 25% of all heart attacks occur in people under 65 years of age. I'll repeat that. I'll, I'll repeat that because I'm I'm under 65 years of age and I can resonate with this. Approximately 25% of all heart attacks occur in people under 65 years of age. And these are not people ready to give up valuable time on earth. These are people who still have good stuff to do, have the chance to contribute, have love they want to share, have families they want to be with. They've still got things to do on their bucket list. They want to see the pyramids and they want to take the caravan around Australia. This is extraordinary. And we are, to a large degree, complacent about trying to be really proactive in this space. And it saddens me and motivates me at the same time. Yeah, I'm such a proponent of having this kind of conversation where for so many of us, we're not we're not, we're not seeing that that like those last years of life, and we're not we're not experiencing what happens if we don't look after the body for a long period of time, you know. And we're not really experiencing like that that sudden loss of life from a heart attack that directly affects us, and therefore a lot of the time we're not taking the action, you know, because we're not seeing. It. Whereas people like yourself, you, you're aware of it you know, all the time, you know. And so this message needs to get out there, and that's. That's why this conversation is so important because, you know, in my business, I've seen lots of sick people for many years. I'm very, (laughs) very motivated to look after myself because I don't want to end up in that position. And I imagine it's the same for yourself. I mean, you've been working with people for decades and you you just know so much now you can't, people need to know this because 
if we're not experienced to it every day, it just doesn't, it seems to be this thing, this psychological thing, we're just not taking action on it, you know? The mentality to some degree seems to be, it won't happen to me. And we are also, I see this all the time, people are lulled into a false sense of security. Um, I don't have a family history of heart disease or my cholesterol's not too bad or, or I exercise or I eat well, therefore I should be fine. These are really, to a large degree, things that we would call associations, but don't define causation and therefore can be wrong. Mm. And do you need me to clarify association and causation? Let's go. Yeah, sure. Let me me use a, a very simple example. And I've just given you some examples around heart health and people will say to me, oh, yeah, I don't need to check out my heart because I'm fit or I'm healthy or I exercise or my cholesterol is really good or whatever, all right? Now, they're associations. To understand association and causation, let's move to a different um, sort of circumstance and let's think about car accidents. So if we think about car accidents, everyone would agree that speeding and alcohol are closely related to car accidents. Now, here's the important bit. Speeding and alcohol are associations. They are not causation because if speed or alcohol were causative, then every time someone sped or every time someone drank or every time someone drank and sped, they would crash and that does not happen. And the flip side would be that if you do not drink and you do not speed, then you cannot have an accident. And that's just not true because the causation for car accidents is far more complicated. It might be a ball running out onto a street. It might be the car in front stops because they sneezed. It might be you're playing with your phone. Um, It can be many other things. And the causation for coronary artery disease is far, far more complicated than eat well, look fit, go to the gym, family history not there, blood pressure's fine, I should be okay. It, it is more complicated. And until we really accept that we can't predict based on those associations, and I've just explained you can't, you can't predict who's going to have a car accident based on associations, can you? You can, you can guess in a population which population is most likely to run into problems, but you can't define who will have a problem. As soon as you recognise that, for us as individuals with our hearts, we go, okay, well, how, how do we go beyond those associations? How do we really figure out what a real risk of heart attack is for this individual? Mm. So how, like, what are the causations? And if it's not as simple as some of those more basic lifestyle factors? So here's, here's the honest, uh, here's the low down honest truth from your local cardiologist. There's a, there's a very good chance I may be one of the most uh, experienced Um, and fortunate enough to be in the area of very close relationships with the people who are driving knowledge around coronary artery disease. I'm I'm very closely related to these people. And what I often say to some of my patients, Alex, is I'm probably the most knowledgeable person in, in this space of coronary artery disease who you will ever meet. And I can tell you with all honesty, I do not understand the process. So if you find someone who does understand the process, please get them to educate me or 
they are pulling your leg and the process is outrageously complicated. As soon as we start to think about plaque buildup or cholesterol buildup in arteries, we know, for example, that we see people with high cholesterol, really bad arteries, but we also see people with high cholesterol and good arteries and vice versa. We see people with low cholesterol and really good arteries, but we also see people with low cholesterol and really bad arteries. And so cholesterol, for example, as an association is not, is not holistic in its explanation, doesn't cover all bases. So then we have to tease it out. Things like blood pressure are really important. Smoking is really important. Exercise is important. Don't get me wrong. Age is important. As you get older, the risk of heart attack increases. Family history is important, but none of these pin down the causation. And when we look at coronary arteries where they rupture and cause death, it's a focal process. One area within an artery becomes affected, and we don't know how to predict that. That may be related to all sorts of things such as even the course that the artery takes down the surface of the heart, for example, bends and twists. It's, it's very complicated. And is this, is this partly due to the fact that we can't really kind of like open up a heart as it's working and, and watch how cholesterol builds up and how plaque builds up over time? Like it's just very hard to get that data i imagine like we're, we're just looking at people once they've we're, we've passed or whilst we're doing surgery on them but to see how that works over time i imagine we can't really get that information correct very hard to look at it the of course we can look at pathology slides for someone who's passed we can cut out bits of arteries and look at them and that gives us information we can image arteries and see what's going on but the the actual occurrence right at the p- place where plaque builds up we we don't have a mechanism for tracking that. And I, to be honest, I think what actually happens is that there's a number of associations which, if you like, create an environment for plaque formation, a bit like parking your car near the sea for a long period of time. That salt air is an environment for rust formation. And you go around your car and there's no rust and that, that environment hasn't had an impact yet but it may do at some stage. And some cars will rust more than other cars. For example, when it comes to the heart, all these associations are really important in terms of that environment of plaque formation, blood pressure, smoking, diabetic status, et cetera, et cetera. But then something happens locally in those arteries. And I think what's probably occurring is wear and tear, where the blood is uh, literally being pumped down the artery and generating friction or shear stress if you think about shear stress with fluid, imagine a river and a river delta. As the water moves down that river, there are areas where it cuts out the river and areas where it deposits simply based on the speed and the friction that that water generates in the river. Well, I think the same thing's happening in the heart. In the arteries, certain locations get rubbed, if you like, rubbed the wrong way. There's friction from the blood. And that damage sets off a whole set of responses to heal and mend at that location. Now, one of the things that the body uses for healing and mending is cholesterol because that's what cell membranes are made out of. But it's even more complicated than that because that 
the cell, the cholesterol that gets there, cholesterol doesn't float around in the body as cholesterol. It floats around in the body in these remarkably intricate particles that we call lipoproteins. Now, lipoproteins, imagine a Ferrero Rocher, are these prickly round little things that in the middle carry cholesterol around because cholesterol just of its own in the bloodstream is non-soluble, which means it's just like cream in milk. So as we stood for any length of time, cholesterol would just float up to our heads. Well, that doesn't happen. We have these fantastic little particles that float around in the bloodstream. Now, the interesting thing is they've even demonstrated that these particles, which are made out of proteins, have different uh, structure between different individuals, and those different structures increase the predisposition or not to those particles sticking in the arteries and giving up their cholesterol. Have you got a sense of how complicated this is? <laughs> I've got a sense of how wonderful the body is. <laughs> magnificent. It is magnificent. So it's interesting. I, I guess I've, and, and here I guess in lies the problem is that I've never really thought about it in this sense. In my mind, I'm like, okay, I've got my heart, I've got my arteries and I'm born and, and, and they'll grow with me. But once I get to, to full adult size, that's it. And then they're slowly just wearing away. But of course, they're going to wear away pretty quickly unless the body has some sort of repair mechanism, which is what you're suggesting that actually the cholesterol is here to do. I'm sticking my neck out a bit. I don't think there would be a, um, a hypothesis that would be accepted broadly that it's a healing mechanism. But it sort of makes sense in trying to understand why we get focal um, issues within the arteries. Why, why would it only be... You know, we literally talk of a plaque in the arteries at the very beginning of the major artery down the front of the heart. We call that artery the left anterior descending. But we find cases where there's one plaque in an individual and that plaque is at the beginning of that major artery. So when you think about the associations, things like blood pressure, cholesterol, inflammation, if you want to use a random word that people love to use, <laughs> these associations are right through the body equally. And yet one centimetre of plaque at the proximal LAD occurs with such frequency and the rest of the arteries are completely clear. It occurs with such frequency it's being given a name, which is the widow maker, because it's a cause of sudden cardiac death in relatively young men. And so there's something to do with the angle of that artery, something to do with wear and tear in that particular spot that just drives cholesterol buildup and formation and eventually a ruptured plaque. So what are some more of these associations? You, you've mentioned some being diabetes and things, but what are some of these others? And perhaps what are some of these ones that people may not be aware of, for example? Well, to get caught on the association steers us away from actually um, figuring out who's going to have a problem. But there are a number of things. Uh, we look at subfractions of the cholesterol particles. So there's different subfractions and carriers of cholesterol that um, represent higher risk. There's one called lipoprotein little a, for example, and cardiologists who are looking after individuals with a bad family history of premature coronary disease may well um, investigate for this. Uh, personally, I think things like insulin are quite important and insulin resistance and therefore keeping weight down. And, and these are um, this raised insulin, insulin resistance is something we'd see in pre-diabetics and diabetics, particularly if they're carrying too much weight. But the, the standard um, associations like age, 
male sex, because men seem to run a course 10 years earlier than women, is important. Family history is important. Uh, cholesterol levels are important and blood pressure, of course. So, you know, there's a, we, we pull all these things together, but they're, they're really good as a population based tool. They don't help us in a predictive way in the individual. There, there's a disconnect there. Yeah, no, I totally understand that. So then if we're talking individual, for example, and, and I'm particularly vigilant about it now because I think, well, perhaps if I'd known more, you know, maybe I could have helped help someone. Um, and so, yeah, what? How does it differ for an, for an individual? Like, what are the sort of things that you typically look for or ask about? So, let me take you through a scenario. Imagine uh, a fifty to fifty-five year old male came to see me for a consultation. I'm a cardiologist, and I'm interested in prevention. And a local GP says to uh, a gentleman, 50 to 55 years of age, I want you to go and see Warwick to see what he thinks about your cardiac risk, your risk of heart attack over the next five to 10 years. So currently at the moment, Alex, our guideline approach, what everyone does in Australia and what your GP would do if you were 50 to 55, I know you're not, <laughs> but with 50 to 55 year old men, they bring them in and they put in their details into what we call a cardiovascular risk calculator. And that would have, you know, age, sex, blood pressure, let's say it's average, cholesterol, let's say it's average, and really just a non-smoker and put in some of those, if you like, risk factors that we've already called associations. And then the GP or me would hit a key to calculate the risk. Right. Now, I can tell you that for the average bloke between 50 and 55, just based on statistics, the rate of event will be quoted to that person as 5 to 10% in the next 10 years, all right? Now, in medical speak, we think a risk of 5 to 10% is relatively low risk. So we put your details into the risk calculator. We turn around and say, let's imagine you're that patient. Alex, your risk is only 5 to 10% of a heart attack in the next 5 to 10 years. And you think, oh, that's great because you get, you know, a green flag and everything's story. Now, if we stop for a moment and think about it, that's a misrepresentation of the facts and it's not answering your question. So what I tend to say to people is, Alex, based on your characteristics, what this risk calculator tells me is that you sit in a population where if we were to take 100 blokes just like you and follow those 100 blokes for the next five to 10 years, five to 10 of you will have a heart attack. Mm. And I just don't know if you're one of the five to 10. Do you get the difference? Yeah, it's some perspective right there. It's the difference between a population-based assessment and an individual assessment. What you came in asking me is, Warwick, what's my risk of heart attack? The first example, I actually told you what the rate of event, what the rate of heart attack is in your population. You didn't come in asking me that. You didn't come in and say, Warwick, what's the rate of event in the population in which I sit? You come in and say, what's my risk? So I use that conversation as a way to let people understand that associations don't help us predict the individual. 
Those associations tell us five to 10 people are going to have a heart attack. Put yourself in a room of nine other people with the same characteristics at 50 to 55 years of age and look around knowing one of you is going to have a heart attack based on statistics in the next 10 years. And then ask the question, would I like to know who that is? It's a no-brainer. So my area of interest, Alex, to a large degree, and this is reflected on my uh, website and the books I've written, is that I believe there's a real role for taking those individuals at about that risk level and putting them through a process where we literally directly scan their arteries, looking for the health of their arteries. By doing that while they're still well, we have the chance to find people with rusty pipes and we can put in uh, strategies to mitigate their future risk. We can find people with purely healthy, wonderful pipes. We can reassure them and say, come back in five to 10 years and we'll check you again. But we can suddenly start to be precise about the individual, make the best management choices for those people to either mitigate their future risk or reassure them that what they're doing at the moment is the right thing. And I guess part of that message would it be, let's say they do have good pipes, keep doing what you're doing. Don't well, change what you're doing. As long as they're doing the right things. I mean, if they were smoking and overweight and pre-diabetic, you'd still have a chip at them in actual fact. So you'd say, look, this will catch up with you. Um, if they're hypertensive, you'd treat that. But it's, it's so valuable to know this information. And the technology is cardiac CT. So CT scanners now are advanced enough where the majority of CT scanners can acquire images fast enough to take a picture of the beating heart. Now, we could never do this 20 or 30 years ago with our early CT scanners because they could only take a small slice of information at a time. Now, the heart's about 15, 16 centimetres vertically. If we can acquire that very quickly with one sweep or two sweeps, we can literally freeze the heart and get these fantastic pictures. And by looking at them going, yep, you got a problem, we'll fix it now before you, before you actually find this problem um, in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning and get rushed to hospital with your heart attack. So it's an incredible opportunity to change the future for people. Oh, absolutely. I love that. So you're saying 50 to 55, particularly men, but I'm guessing also women get in and get a CT scan, get it checked out? Yeah. At least have the conversation with your GP. And in my perfect world, a bit like we get a bowel, blood, fecal occult, uh, testing kit in the mail at 50 years of age, right across Australia, I think it would be sensible for us to be imaging men at 50 years of age and women at 60 years of age as a routine. I mean, we do mammograms, we do uh, checks for bowel cancer, we do skin checks, and yet the thing that kills kills more than anyone else, heart attack, we don't check it. And so it's not a guideline yet, but it is such an important conversation. And I've got, you know, as you are probably aware, I've got information on that on my website and I've even got facility for people to go through a free heart check if they're the right risk level, appropriate risk level. They can then follow through and order a virtual heart scan consultation online so they don't even have to leave home. They can get a test organised for them any near located at any major centre in Australia for about 300 bucks and get the get the process going. It's ridiculously simple. Mm, I love that. 
When you're having a conversation with someone who has a CT scan done, we get that amazing picture of the heart, look at it, and there's some concerns. What does a conversation typically look like from there? Like, let's say, let's use me as an example. I'm not 55 yet, but I will be one day. And something comes back, you know, maybe uh, the, the widow maker is starting to show some signs of, of, uh, of plaque, et cetera. What does that conversation typically look like? Look, it's a re- that's a great question, Alex, and it's um, <laughs> I'm going to try and share that I do have just a tiny bit of compassion when I'm dealing with people because I just know they're <laughs> human, right? So, so here's so first of all, um, nobody ever comes in wanting to find that there's anything going on in their arteries. Full stop. So when I find something. At times, I get people who are disappointed or sad or upset or even confronted. Sometimes we find high-risk features in individuals or even very high-risk features, and they're confronted. Now, remember, we can um, we can see loss of health as loss of something else, mm. and we can go through the, the grief process with health when we think it's taken away from us. So people get this... Some people get this grief response. They go, oh, no, I'm not perfect. Well, of course, if you think it through, if, you know, about uh, 30% to 40% of people are going to die from coronary disease, it's a bit of a no-brainer that it would be a surprise if you didn't have anything in your arteries at a 50, as a 50 or 60-year-old bloke. So, first of all, you've got to put it and contextualise it. So, one of the things I try and be is as positive as possible and let individuals know that, yes, we found some stuff and I agree, you, nobody ever wants to know this stuff in their arteries, but let's accept that it was always going to be there. We've now got this incredible opportunity to be forewarned and make plans for the future. I often say to them it's a bit like travelling down the highway of life and suddenly seeing that in the lane you're in, there's a huge pothole up ahead and now we've got a chance to steer around it. We can put in place the appropriate strategies to actually save your life. Now, here's the exciting bit. This is worthwhile because coronary artery disease is treatable. It's not like we're searching for a condition that we find it and go, sorry, there's no treatment. That, that would be, it would be wrong, actually, for all sorts of reasons. But for coronary artery disease, we have an incredibly good chance of preventing heart attacks and saving lives. I had a guy who was 45 years of age come and see me last year. This is a guy who was running marathons. In fact, he lives nearby and we've actually surfed together. Came in with his high cholesterol, said, you know, I'm not sure about this. Should I be on statins or not? And I said, look, the best way for us to ascertain, you know, what we should do treatment-wise is know what's going on in your arteries. Is your raised cholesterol putting stuff in your arteries? Is your raised cholesterol not putting stuff in your arteries? Well, the long and the short of it, Alex, was that we ended up scanning him. He had terrible arteries. He had surgery within four weeks coronary artery bypass grafting. Wow. Uh, some eight weeks after his surgery, he came around, we went for a run together and he kicked my ass on, please to say. <laughs> <laughs> but, but think of the alternate universe. So disappointed we found stuff, but 
he's he's overjoyed now. He keeps sending me friends <laughs> because he's now <laughs> realised that that opportunity to be forewarned, it saved his life. He had three children under 12 years of age. Uh, what if they'd lost their father? Yeah, I mean, everything that happens in life is a gift, even though we may not see it initially. And a gift was handed to him on that day, right? He learned something he didn't know. Yeah, so the conversation was <laughs> good news and bad news. You've got a lot of rust in the pipes. That's the bad news. But the good news is you're warm, you're well, you walked in here and we will save your life. Mm. It's like it's. I, I really... I get so excited about the opportunity, actually. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's amazing, you know. Wow. Yeah. And so then, like, I guess what I'm trying to get at is for so long I've really, I mean, people have heard enough about my journey. I don't need to go into it, but I've always been a big proponent around there's there's certain things that we really can avoid and 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 do more of or do less of that's going to help. And in, and in his instance, there's something that's gotten him to having rusty pipes at that age. Should some changes be made to perhaps then prevent from them getting to that stage again in another decade or so? So as soon as we find that, Alex, we really try and we deal with those associations that we talked about because those associations could really represent that environment. Mm. And so if your car is rusting by the sea, move it inland. Uh, this guy's cholesterol was high, so we've driven it down into his boots. And people go, oh, yeah, but you need cholesterol. Well, those conversations are often poorly informed. Yes, we need cholesterol. Uh, no question about that. Uh, but we can drive cholesterol levels down basically to the level that you were, that you had cholesterol levels when you were born. At the very time, you were the most synthetic and anabolic in your entire life. So, and if we drive cholesterol levels down to that sort of uh, number, so we're talking 1.6, 1.5 millimoles per litre, which is what a newborn has, we've got evidence in randomised controlled trials that we can see plaque regression in more than 50% of individuals who reach those sort of levels. So, so yes, we, we change the environment, Alex. So for this gentleman... One lever we could pull is the cholesterol. Another one is we'd make sure about his blood pressure. Mm -hmm. We put him on aspirin to keep his blood thin so that we reduce the risk of a heart attack out of the blue. And then we keep him on super close surveillance. Plus we talk about things like stress and maybe meditation and maybe we invite him to keep him on a lower carbohydrate diet to keep down his insulin levels. We check his triglycerides um, and we screen his family to make mm -hmm. sure that you know, because sometimes the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Is there someone else in the family at risk? So all sorts of things are actioned to deal with this gentleman and not just in that one event, but for the rest of his life and holistically and with his family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. For me, it's that importance around those lifestyle factors. Like if we're not, and I understand now they're not the complete picture, but, you know, if we're not eating the right things, if we're not hydrating the body correctly, maybe we're exercising too much, too little, maybe we're chronically stressed. I don't know what it might be. Maybe we're drinking too much. I also don't know if some of those things have a direct relation to, to the health of our heart, but it's those things that got us to that point, right? And so we need to change some things if we want to progress somewhere else.
you know? It's a it's complex. And there's behind some of that, there's no question that environment and lifestyle is important. Um, I don't think anyone would ever argue with that. But the flip side, of course, is that there are genetic predispositions that really mean that these people, um, you know, are touched by the greater propensity to put plaque in their arteries because of genetic predisposition. We talked about the protein structure of the uh, lipoprotein particles, the little Ferrero Rochers. So changes in those will change the charge, the electrical charge, and therefore how sticky they'll be within the collagen, within the artery. The collagen's the sort of building fibre, the framework. Um, some people have super high cholesterol, and that's a genetic predisposition as well. And some people seem to just put plaque in their arteries. We don't know why. So there's there's definitely an interplay between, if you like, the genetics, the epigenetics and the environment. And I think we have to be so careful to pretend that we think we understand coronary artery disease because we understand one aspect of it. I think that's setting us up for failure. There is such good data in traditional medicine space that we have to accept and recognise. I have no question and no doubt that the lifestyle stuff is incredibly important. And there was some great work done by a cardiologist called Dean Ornish. And for anyone listening to this who's uh, uh, done a sort of a uh, followed a journey of um, health without medication, then Dean Ornish's work supports that through lifestyle intervention alone, you can improve plaque in the coronary arteries. Now, Dean Ornish uh, took a group of people and put them through uh, a very strict diet, extremely strict diet, and I think it was vegetarian-based. I'd, I'd have to go back and check on it. He put them on a very strict exercise program and you put them on a very strict meditation program. And that took up about four to six hours in a day, but it worked in terms of stabilizing or reducing plaque in arteries. In his conclusion of this particular study, he said, I've demonstrated this works, but I don't think it's really accessible for the greater population who need to go to work and look after kids and various other bits and pieces. So there's, go figure that. It's complicated, <laughs> huh? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. There, there's a part of me that's like, no, but it is. Like, it's just change your life. <laughs> but um, it's, it's not that easy all the time. Um, if we move on from, from coronary artery disease, what is atrial fibrillation and how is that a different kind of issue to deal with what's happening in the heart when, when we're talking about that? Yeah, very happy to answer that, Alex. Look, um, I often use the, the analogy of the heart being like a car engine. And a car engine, we're all familiar with. We turn on the ignition and it fires up. That's the electrical system, hooks up to the battery and the timing. And then the pistons and valves, they're really the chambers, the, um, the power chambers of the heart. And we've just been talking about the fuel lines, which supply fuel to the engine block or the pumping chamber. So atrial fibrillation, let's swap over to the electrical system of the heart. And when we think of the electrical system of the heart, it generally uh, originates that each beat of the heart tends to originate in the top chambers of the heart. We call those the atria. If you like, they're the pre-pumping chambers. For those listening, it's easy to think of the heart as 
a four-chambered organ and two chambers on each side of the lungs, if you like. So the right heart receives blood into the right atrium, squeezes blood into the right ventricle, the right ventricle pumps blood into the lungs, blood then comes back and is received in the left atrium. The left atrium gives it a squeeze, it goes into the left ventricle, and then the left ventricle squeezes blood around the body. So if you can think of the heart as two atria, two ventricles, atrial fibrillation is when the synchronicity, the organised contraction of the top chambers of the heart are lost. They go into the heart, the top chambers go into a chaotic, irregular rhythm. It's, um, we describe it as irregularly irregular, but I often used to describe it as the piss guy at the discotheque who's completely out of tune with the music, just all over the place. And so that irregular pulse is atrial fibrillation. And because the top chambers, the atria are not pumping properly, they don't squeeze the blood into the ventricles as they should. And so the ventricle, when it pumps out, is not pumping to its usual capacity. So there's generally a drop in cardiac performance or cardiac output or how well the pump works. And we often find that for people who, for example, keep a close eye on their uh, functional level, uh, for example, cyclists who may develop this condition, they drop about 15% of their maximum uh, workload through developing this rhythm. But it's, it's, a, it's a very common condition, Alex. We see, we see atrial fibrillation in about 1% of the population, but over 10 to 15% of the population in individuals 80 years or older. So 1% in the community, 10 to 15% if you're 80 years or older, and it's very closely linked to age being a close association to, to development of this condition. And is atrial fibrillation an, uh, the actual technical term for a heart palpitation or is a palpitation something else? So a palpitation is a symptom or a, a, a term that the patient reports. A symptom is something that the patient will tell you about. Dr. I have a palpitation. Atrial fibrillation is our diagnosis of what's causing that palpitation. So we can have different things that can cause a palpitation, uh, superventricular tachycardia, um, an atrial fibrillation, an atrial flutter, a ventricular tachycardia, all these can cause, or ventricular ectopic beats, uh, superventricular ectopic beats, all these thumps and bumps in the heart give rise to the symptom of a palpitation. And atrial fibrillation is one of those things that can cause a symptom. But while I've got the stage, very importantly, not everyone feels their atrial fibrillation. There is a good percentage of people who don't even know they're in it. And this is terrifying because apart from atrial fibrillation causing a decrease in the functional capacity of the heart, the other thing that it's really uh, very important to consider is in regard to that top chamber of the heart not moving properly, because it doesn't move properly, blood can pool in that top chamber of the heart. If blood pools within the circulation for any period of time, there's a small chance it can form a clot. And if a clot forms in the heart and then breaks loose, that clot can pop out of the atria, through the ventricle, and absolutely devastatingly end up in the brain, and that causes a stroke. So about 30% of all strokes in Australia are related to this condition. And that's an incredible 
mortality and morbidity impact. How do we find out if we're suffering from atrial fibrillation? Check your pulse. Get someone to check your pulse. Uh, if it's fast and irregular, and particularly if you're uh, around about 65 plus, we think um, opportunistic checking is well worthwhile. If there's any concern at all, you've got to get an ECG. Some watches may even have the algorithms to help you with that. Uh, certainly, I think the new Apple Watch has an algorithm which is pretty accurate for that. The irony, of course, there is that most Apple Watches are worn by young folk who don't get atrial fibrillation and not worn by the folk who are likely to have it. So we think opportunistic checking is really important. When you go to your GP, they should check the pulse. Uh, if you're at your pharmacist, maybe get them to check it. If you've got a nurse or a trainee medical student or a physio or someone in the family, uh, it's a great thing to check, uh, particularly uh, mum and dad's pulse, but even grandma and grandpa's pulse, just to check it's okay. Mm. Yeah, so you're saying if if I was to check my pulse for like a minute over that time, if I was suffering from atrial fibrillation, I may notice that my pulse rate changes. You'd notice it was pretty irregular, hard to track. Yep. Um, yep. So it's, and, and it would just not be a nice regular full volume pulse. What do we know about some of the issues that were cropping up with the COVID vaccinations? I know there was a, a bit of a hoo-ha around people suffering atrial fibrillation problems after getting vaccinated. What do we know about that? So the vaccinations have been, obviously there's a couple of different types of vaccinations. I'm not an expert on vaccines. Um, I have seen a number of people with vaccine-related side effects, so I can speak to that to some degree. There are standard, um, there's the standard vaccines, which uh, the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine represents that, and you're probably aware there was a, an idiosyncratic or um, somewhat unpredictable recognised side effect, and that was a, a propensity to thrombosis. That was one of the standard vaccines where they purified a component of the pathogen, the COVID virus, and injected the uh, inactive uh, marker, which was the spike protein, so that our own bodies could generate a response. The RNA vaccines were the ones that were linked with heart-related issues. As far as I'm aware, atrial fibrillation wasn't seen as a major problem. The RNA vaccines really worked by the insertion of a small amount of RNA code into the cell of the recipient, which would then generate a spike protein that the body would then be able to respond to. Very clever and uh, probably the first time we've seen this sort of vaccine utilised broadly. What occurred was that there was observation, particularly in the US with young men receiving this vaccine, and they used that because of the risk of uh, thrombus or blood clotting from the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, we, they found with young men, particularly in the military, that they were getting symptoms uh, related to chest pain and those symptoms were found to be an inflammation of the sac around the heart. The sac around the heart allows the heart to move within uh, the thorax, within the chest, without rubbing up against stuff. And that sac is called the pericardium. Peri meaning around, cardium pertaining to heart. And it's a sac, easy to imagine if you um, had a bit of saliva in a balloon, a party balloon, uh, that 
that balloon slides, the surfaces of that balloon slide, and the pericardium is just like that. What seemed to happen was one of the carrier, well, we're not 100% sure, but it's possible that one of the carrier um, components of that vaccine, which was a liposomal carrier to allow that uh, mRNA to get into the cell, had some cross-reactivity with the sac around the heart, the pericardium, and to a lesser degree, the myocardium. So what that means is that the uh, vaccine that was given had some markers on it, which looked a lot like the heart and the body got a bit confused. So a number of people had the body respond to the vaccine, thinking it was a foreign thing, which of course it was, but because that was so close to some of the cell markers within the pericardium and the myocardium, there was that cross reactivity, the, an immune response driven to the wrong components. And uh, look, fortunately, to a large degree, these were pretty short lived. Uh, several days was the main issue. Most people got over them without any troubles at all. And the vast majority of people are still able to go back and have a further vaccine, even of the mRNA type. The important take home is that to a large degree, that rate was about one tenth of what we saw in terms of complication of the myocardium and pericardium compared to actually getting COVID as an infection. Yeah, right. Yeah. I see. Um, if you were to, if someone would just walk past and, and, and say, Warwick, what are some simple things I can do? I can get tested. You know, if you could just give like the quick rap sheet, I guess, on some like the, those risk factors that we talked about and, and some simple things that we can do. Like what's the what's the thirty second spiel to someone who's thinking about oh I might have some issues and I want to prevent them or do what I can you know look um, great great question and one I'm absolutely delighted to speak to I think you need to lock in with your GP you need to make a decision to be proactive number one if you don't make a decision you're wasting your time uh, so like any journey you always have to be engaged change your mindset and be proactive lock in with your GP. I strongly recommend you get your cholesterol checked. I strongly suggest you get your sugars checked. I tend to check insulin simultaneously. Very few people do that, but I think it offers good information. And if you're really interested in listening closely, go and look up a HOMA test, which is a HOMA test, and it's a homeostatic metabolic assessment of insulin resistance. And you can calculate that yourself if you've got your insulin and sugar. Um, what do we say? We said cholesterol, sugar, insulin, for goodness sake, get your blood pressure checked. We now can uh, get a Medicare rebated 24-hour blood pressure monitor. Blood pressure is so important. It's the whole wear and tear on the system. It drives heart attack. It drives stroke. It drives atrial fibrillation. It drives cardiac failure. It drives renal failure. And it's probably linked to Alzheimer's as well. So get your blood pressure checked. These are all outrageously easy to do and they're sort of one or two visits to the GP. If you're at intermediate risk or low risk with risk enhancers like a bad family history or a highish cholesterol, please have the conversation about getting a cardiac CT scan or if you want to be proactive in your own time, check out my website, look at the free heart test, follow that through and look at the virtual heart scan consultation because once we know what's going on in your 
arteries, once we've imaged your arteries, are they good, bad, or in between, then we can be most precise about the next steps. But do the simple thing. I normally suggest exercise is fantastically important, but anyone who's listening to this and part of the found space family know that already. I've got my own sauna, as you're aware. I think it's fantastic. Uh, and I meditate as well. I eat a low-carb uh, diet with uh, plenty of greens, so my meals most nights are salad. I'm a bit like, well, I don't fast quite as much as you, <laughs> Alex, but, but I do a 16-8 pretty well every day. And, nice. um, and I try and... I try and live with as much balance as possible. So um, some simple checks, uh, some good lifestyle stuff, and just please be proactive. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, you mentioned earlier that that uh, you do a bit of running. Is that still something that's part of your, your day-to-day? Uh, look, I, I used to run an awful lot. I, um, I had the chance to compete in a thing called the Three Peaks Race here in Tasmania. And that was a 65-kilometre run followed by, oh, up Mount Streslecki on Flinders Island, followed by a 34-kilometre run, uh, which was up Mount Graham at Coles Bay, followed by being dropped off here in Hobart at Constitution Dock and running up Mount Wellington, which is a 32-kilometre run. And honestly, I haven't done a lot of running since then. (laughs) My God, what was that like? What were the gaps between those runs? Uh, It was about a three-day event. Okay. Then. But we ran the last. We ran the last one with headlamps. Um, but yeah. these days, I these days I try and surf. Um, I've got a stand up paddle board and a supine board. I walk along the beach. I uh, occasionally jog a little bit, but I don't run quite as much anymore. Uh, and I use a surf ski when I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. That's a, that's a lot of running. I like it. <laughs> Do you run? Uh, not so much at the moment. I did a couple of half marathons and then, then I did a lot of fasting and running wasn't a part of my life for the last couple of years, but now I'm, um, I'm getting pretty strong again. So I'm starting to run a little bit more and enjoying it. So if I could speak to exercise momentarily for anyone listening, my advice with patience is find what you enjoy doing from an exercise perspective. Don't go and do something because you think you have to because it'll drive you nuts and then you won't do it. If you don't enjoy your exercise, you won't look forward to it and you've got to look forward to it because it has to be part of your life. So true. Like find something that you really enjoy doing and just do it. You know, I was saying to my friends the other day, they were asking me uh, like what I'm doing for working out at the moment and I said to them, well, each morning I wake up and I meditate for 20 minutes. And then I either go to the local bouldering gym, which is a bit of a thing I'm into at the moment. And I'm doing that every two days. And on the days in between, I'll either go for a surf or I'll go for a bike ride. And like, I just enjoy that. And through that, I've actually gotten stronger. I've, I've, my fitness has increased. Um, but then a couple, couple weeks ago, I started doing some like fitness classes and just realized like, I just didn't have the excitement to go to them. Like, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I'm, do- I'm doing some strength training. That's important. Sure, yeah, I'm doing some deadlifts and, and some squats and things. It's awesome. But I was struggling to find – yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was struggling to find that excitement to go. And I just thought, um, you know what? No, I'm just going to – I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to keep doing what I was doing because I was yeah. working and I was having fun. And I was moving my body and I was having a sweat. And one day I might even know how to surf. But, <laughs> you know, it's just – it's fun. And I think that's important. Um, so very good point. Um, 
Warwick, what else did you want to share with the listeners? Where can they find you? What books can they purchase from you? And what are you working on at the moment? Look, I'm pretty easy to find. If you Google Dr. Warwick Bishop, um, my website will come up, which is uh, D-R-W-A-R-R-I-C-K. So it's an unusual spelling for Warwick. DrWarwickBishop.com. Very easy to find. Um, I'm CEO of the Healthy Heart Network, and through that we provide uh, support and educational material, particularly this journey through uh, getting your risk organised and sorting out your cardiovascular risk and managing it appropriately into the future. I set that up really because I realised there was a gap between what I believe is the best care that an individual can have in this space and what most people are getting. And so we've got courses and information to support people through that. If uh, people are interested and they're that intermediate risk category, 5 to 10% risk of a heart attack in the next 5 to 10 years or have risk enhancers, not sure what to do about their cholesterol, then they may wish to look at the uh, virtual heart scan consultation, which they'll find through my website by taking the free heart check. I've got a number of books. Uh, as you're aware, I've got a book on atrial fibrillation. I've got one on cardiac failure. Uh, I have two on heart attack prevention. They're all available through my website. And I'm working on a book on uh, cardiac rehabilitation right at the moment that's coming to an end. And I'm putting together a book on cholesterol, which I'm going to call Cholesterol and Statins Explained, Understanding the Fats from Fiction. So just putting a dad joke in there in the title. <laughs> and uh, look, that's to a large degree, that's that's where I'm at the moment. I've got plenty of stuff happening for anyone interested in my podcasts. I've got over 200 podcasts, but I don't want to compete with yours there, Alex, that, although they're quite different in style. Mine are a bit shorter, 10 to 15 minutes, and uh, cover a very short or brief topic. Many people, I'm pleased to say, have uh, offered really kind feedback on those podcasts. And again, they're available through my website. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, if you want some really good insight into anything heart health related, um, checking out Warwick's podcast is definitely the place to go, can attest. Well, mate, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've certainly learned something. Um, I hope some of the listeners have and um, hopefully I'll have you back on soon sometime. Look, I, I would love to come back and talk some more. There's so much to share and even to remind people in a, uh, after some time has elapsed, please don't forget your maintenance. It's so easy to forget to look after your heart. On our cars, we have a little sticker on the window that tells us when we hit a certain number of kilometres, we should go and get checked, but we don't have that for ourselves. And it's been a pleasure sharing. I really do hope I've been able to reach out and give some people some information that could impact and make a real and meaningful difference in their lives. Thank you. Beautiful, mate. Cheers. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes.